you know, when you're in hockey, and even for someone like me, you take for granted just the athleticism that it takes to be in that. And these are, you guys are really the top 1% in the world of what you do, period. And, you know, that barrier of entry is so challenging. I think it's taken for granted a lot of times, just how hard you guys really work. That was Scott Tinkler, former associate equipment manager of the Florida Panthers from 1993 until 2005. And you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padone. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Welcome back or welcome to the Up My Hockey Podcast with Jason Padolan. I am your host, Jason Padolan, and I'm excited today because I'm going to bring you a guest uh, from a line in the hockey world, like a, a job a job in the hockey world that I have not covered yet. I mean, I've had a, I've had a ref on the podcast and Tom Cowell. I've had NHL GMs on like uh, Ken Holland and coaches and assistant coaches and players and scouts and director of hockey development, and I've had all of those types of people on, but I have yet to have an equipment manager on. And today is the day we're going to talk to Scott Tinkler. And Scott Tinkler, he's one of those names, I think his name, first of all, is amazing, Tinkler. His 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 nickname was Tink. Uh, he was just a, such a fun guy to be around in the locker room in Florida when I was there. And he was just one of the guys to me. Like, he was... He was one of the boys. He he would do anything for you. He he'd get you, you know, he'd grab you a towel or he'd get your skates done or he'd uh he'd grab your equipment if it needed repair and get it get it to the guy who could do that and he was just the guy that could get you stuff. You know, that's that's what Tink was and he he was just he did his best to make sure the players were happy and taken care of and and uh and he was a young man himself when he was in Florida. I think he might have been 23, 24 years old, something like that. I was 20, so it wasn't like he had you know, he was he was an elder statesman and, and, and long in the tooth when it came to his job. He was he was there, he was young, he was fresh and, and so he was very relatable to someone like me and uh, he reached out to me on LinkedIn. I I've been doing some some posting on LinkedIn about my hockey in the podcast and and, uh, and he reached out and congratulated me on, on what uh, what I had going on and I was like oh my gosh, after all these years Tink reaches out and you know and he's still involved with Florida and I'm like, What a great guest tink would be like like what goes on behind the scenes that you know the, the average hockey fan doesn't know and and even the average hockey player doesn't know unless you've been in the nhl like how that works and those inner workings and how and how uh, how much we rely on on those guys in the locker room like tink to you know to have things ready to have things prepared and in florida was a zoo with like where the practice rink was and getting equipment shuttled all over the place and making sure everyone's gear was set up and in place and uh, boy, like long, hard hours, and they did a lot of work and uh, and made our lives, you know, super, super easy when it came to uh, what they had to do to to make sure that we were we were ready for games. And um, and Tink was always involved in the stories, and he was always involved in the in the jokes. And and uh, I just thought that he'd be a really fun guest, and it turned out that he was an absolutely phenomenal guest. Uh, you know, we we relived the 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 96 run to the final uh, for anyone who's a Florida Panther fan or a hockey fan at all that remembers that 
that glorious run. It was the year of the rat. And, uh, and we cover what an instrumental role Tink played in the year of the rat. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that story, my goodness, you have to listen to the episode and, and hear Tink talk about, uh, about the rat and the rat trick. And, and we talk about uh, Brian Scroodlin and his antics and Lindy Ruff and, Ruff and what an amazing human he was and the part he played in that team. And, and John Van Beesbrook, uh, who was really the, the backbone of that entire run. And uh, we just we we had a great we had a great conversation really we had a great conversation we covered uh, we covered his rise and his ability to get involved in, in in the sport and 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 the challenges that he had and and talking about the personalities and dealing with the personalities and understanding you know what the wins and losses mean and when's a joke's okay and when you're allowed to smile and when are you allowed to laugh and when you should just shut up and and uh, and all that good stuff and the connection to the players and the connection to the coach we get into some stories about you know the what the players on that team were able to do for for the uh, for the training staff and the and the steps that they would go to and anyways I mean it just it, it goes on it goes on and on and uh, and in a good way like uh, I could talk to Scott all day um, he's he's a really easy guy to be around he's got a real great big heart uh, he cared about the guys that he worked with and I think the guys that he worked for cared for him and and that comes through loud and clear in this episode and. And they really are the pieces of the team that keep the team together and keep things rolling. And um, and I don't I know they're not underappreciated. Like as far as the players in the locker room, uh, the staff there that that makes things tick are are very well respected and and uh, and very taken care of. I believe in any team that I was on. But as far as the casual fan or maybe from outside the locker room, it's not something that you really give much thought to or much credit for those guys behind the scenes that are making it work. But uh, they're definitely massively required and they really are a big piece of the culture of the team. And, uh, and Scott Tinkler was a big part of the culture of the Florida Panthers and their success there early on. I, I truly believe that he was, uh, he, was, he was one of the good guys in the game and I was really happy to see uh, that he was able to come on to share his stories with you. I'm sure you'll get a laugh here. And, uh, and he's still involved with the alumni today, with the Florida Panther alumni today. So I'm, uh, I have the good fortune of being able to, to uh, reconnect with him a couple more times here, hopefully in the future. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. You guys get to hear about uh, an equipment manager for an NHL team. Uh, you get to hear some behind the scenes stories, what it's all about. Uh, get to have a few good laughs. And uh, I give you my conversation with Scott Tingler. Very, very friendly face and somebody I remember fondly, but welcome to the program, Mr. Scott Tinkler. Thank you, Podsy. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate this opportunity to speak with you again. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it was a super like, – for me, doing what I'm doing now, like one of the coolest things about it has been the reconnections, like totally. Like I, I ranked that right up at the top. And, um, and then, you know, being on social media, there are days where I absolutely want – to shove a rusty fork in my neck because of it. But there are also great days where someone like you will reach out on LinkedIn and say, you know, Hey, like whatever. And it's just reconnection. And that now we're talking and, and we're getting to, we're getting to kind of rehash some old memories. So I, I am thankful for that. And thank you for reaching out on, on LinkedIn and, uh, and saying hi in the first place. Absolutely. And you're doing a great job with that, by the way, I'm very happy for you and what you're doing. It's fantastic. Oh, well, thanks. You I mean, it's uh I guess it's needed. You know what I mean? Sometimes you don't even know what you're doing when you start. And uh, w- when I started, it was it was one of those things where it was like a reflection of of, a, of my own career. I, I was brought back to it because of my boys, right? I mean, I was sure. I was out of the game. I mean, I wasn't doing anything. I was in business. I was in the corporate world. I was I was doing what I was doing. And then 
uh, my boys started playing hockey. And then so I start, you know, I'm around the rinks now and I'm around the junior <laughs> players and now I'm around the stories and, and it makes you sort of reflect on what the hell happened to you. And, um, and anyways, you I mean, as life happens full circle, it's like, well, geez, I should be probably trying to help because, uh, because there is room to help, you know, especially in the space that I wanted to step into. And, and, uh, there's definitely been, momentum obviously not just without my hockey but just in general like the mental health space and how do you oh. develop players the best and how do you support them to grow and and there's so many new um ideas that weren't around quite frankly when when we were when i was hanging out with you in 96 yeah, you know that's right yeah so um so anyway so thank you for that and, and thank you for being a, a supporter of it and willing to come on but uh, i'm sure we'll get into a lot of stuff here today but let's let's uh let's let's start with you and maybe like the coolest thing for me is like and probably one of the reasons why I so fondly remember you, well, one, because you were a fantastic guy and a great human just to, to work with, but it was such an exciting time, right? Like, I mean, I got called up to Florida. I, I had been drafted, so I'd met you at the at the camp the year before, so there was an introduction, but then I got called up uh, for the playoff run, and, and we were playing Boston at the time, and, and then yep. I was with the group, right, for the next whatever that was, two-month run or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Like, let, let's go back to that moment in time. Like, you... I assume you were a bit new to hockey. Maybe we should even start there. Let's go a step backward because how yeah. did you get to be a part of the Florida Panthers? Um, you know, this new this new franchise in the NHL in Southern Florida. Like, how did you become a part of that? Well, it's pretty. I was pretty fortunate. Uh, timing played a, a major role in that. But I, I was out of the Marine Corps. I was in the Marines from '88 to '92, and I got out. And the team was actually was awarded, I believe, to Mr. Heisinger in December of '93. Uh, or excuse me, December of '92. I apologize. And they were going to start playing 93. Well, I was helping my father, my stepfather, Neil Goodman, uh, was very close with the Miami Heat trainers and this, that, and the other. So when they brought down, um, when Bobby Clark came here with Sudsy, Sudsy Sotomayor was our first um, uh, equipment manager, and his son Derek was going to be uh, uh, the truck driver. They asked if they knew anybody who knew the area around here. I was in the process of becoming a police officer. And I was like, sure. I, in the interim, I had taken a job selling tickets uh, just to, just as, a, as an intern type scenario, uh, just to try to get my feet wet. And then he, I, I was denied a, a full-time job initially. So the, the, I, I had impressed Bill Beck, who was our first, one of the first team services people. And he said, come on in. So I did. And I, I did really well on that side. I had a passion for the game. I, I grew up kind of watching it. It was hard down here in South Florida. But once I got cable, I was following the, the Devils was actually my team. So uh, it just kind of happened one thing after another. I went down there. And, and next thing you know, I was uh, – I was asked to see helping out Derek. And then what, there was a, a role for a position that kind of helped out in that short term. And, and it turned into the, a year, a, a contract basically. And then Derek and, and Sudsy left uh, to Philly with Bobby Clark. Our second year, we had um, Brian Murray come in and Mark Brennan and Timmy Leroy was here. He was here as an associate as well. And so it was the three of us uh, that really kind of took off from that point. So then I started doing team services and things in addition to the equipment side of it. So I had a pretty good background. And then and by that time, then, the, you know, here we are our third year. The, my second year was the locked, the first lockout. It was a shorter one. Uh, it was the start of the season. And um, we lost, so we played half a year, the first, the second year, we had a great run our first year. We were only one point out of the playoffs and what a phenomenal uh, ensemble they had. They had, uh, it was Brian Murray, excuse me. It was uh, Bill Torrey. It was Bobby Clark. And it was Roger Nielsen was our first coaches. I mean, that's a hell of a staff to start with in this market. Wayne Heisinger, the owner of Blockbuster, he owned the Dolphins and he owned the Marlins at the time too. So it was a whole environment down here. And he had the mantra, like he, he didn't know anything about hockey, but he wanted to hire the best people that 
for the game. And he knew those guys. And he, he certainly that resume of guys. So uh, it started out like that and just materialized. And ultimately, um, I learned a lot on the ropes. I, I was fortunate that I started at this level, very grateful compared to some of the guys that had to work in the minors and this and that. But again, it was just timing. It wasn't. Uh, right. And sometimes in life, that really is, uh, you know, it doesn't matter kind of where you start, it's where you finish. And it worked out at the time. So that's sort of how it materialized and um, became an integral part of that team for, for a long, long time. So you uh, so you did have like one, a penchant for hockey and an interest in it, uh, sure. but not firsthand like knowledge or inner sort of workings of, of what would be going on, which what turned out to be your, your future job for a long time, correct? That's correct. I thought, you know, if it didn't work out the first year, I was 22, I could go be a cop, you know, still it wasn't a big deal. That's a very common course for a former Marine or military to go civil service, whether it's police or firefighter. And I figured, okay, if I'll get this hockey a real kick in the can. If I could do it, great. And if not, I just go back to trying to be a cop again. And, and fortunately, it worked out really, really well, even beyond my expectations. I was very happy to be part That's of that. That's fantastic. So what was the, like, so you take us back to the first couple of days. Like, what was what was the feeling? I mean, I, I would assume, and because I'm I'm the mindset guy, like there must have been a little bit of imposter syndrome going on. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? I'm I'm working with these guys that have been playing hockey their whole lives, and I'm supposed to be doing their equipment. Like, was there was there that hurdle to get over? It was definitely a culture shock. I mean, again, uh, it, it's a tough job. Obviously, you're working really long hours, and and uh, the commitment level has got to be. Uh, one of that, your family kind of, as you know, I mean, you, you, you played it, you know, the game. I mean, so you, you know, for me, it was kind of an, a little bit of an adjustment, but thankfully I was not that far from the Marine Corps, believe it or not. So I was sort of apt for the long days and short nights and sleeping on couches and all the things required, especially for a new franchise, there's no expectation. So there's no history. So you're going in and thankfully I had mentors like Sudsy and, and Timmy and Derek who had been around the game and knew the game and ultimately the people that were around uh, Brian Scrudlins of the world and, and uh, you know, uh, the Lindy Ruffs of the world and the Roger Nielsen's of the world, the people that took us under and really showed a, a true affinity for the, the, the support staff and, um, you know, and, and made me feel very welcome. So, you know, it, clearly I had a lot to learn and I learned on the fly, but it, it was more about just the, the understanding what was required and, being around the room and understanding that as well, you learn the guys, you learn what to say, kind of not what to say, and just who's a little more uh, approachable than guys that aren't. And, and you know, you have to respect you know, these guys are are getting an opportunity to play at the top level and and, and they have their own mind process about where they're at. And uniqueness of an expansion is, you know, from the guys that were taken, they, they were basically, you know, respectfully – not necessarily wanted by their original franchises. So there was that level. Then you had other guys that were coming to camp too. So we were all just sort of, you know, in a new market uh, and, a, and a never before would there have thought of being hockey down in Miami, uh, you know, so the expectation level was, was high, but there was nothing to really compare it to other than where it was. And, and again, having a Sudsy as, as an experienced guy, knowing what to do and all his years in Philadelphia really translated well to us young guys, me, myself and Timmy and, and Derek really helped us along. So that was kind of what it was. And then again, learning as you go, you know, learning the systems, uh, but we all had to do it together because there was nothing really in place. It was what right. worked, what didn't work and take it from there. And obviously you want to pull away from what doesn't and focus on what does and move from there. What was your, what was your role specifically? I know, I mean, we have it flashing across the screen, associate equipment manager, but for those, for those of those of, uh, 
the listeners listening yeah. at home, like what, what does that mean? Or what, what did your day look like? Well, clearly initially it was more of uh, task oriented in terms of getting the equipment up, uh, transferring around the laundry, the towels, room preparation, all the things associated with that level, the real entry level equipment side, getting a, a cup or, uh, you know, gloves or this, that, and the other, nothing to do with the actual equipment repair that, that sort of came later as I learned the job. Uh, that's where the associate came in. Um, I, I learned how to sharpen. I didn't know how to sharpen skates. Clearly, it was something I learned that doing there. I didn't know how to sew uh, gloves. I was taught that. So you learn your craft, and that's where I, I, you know, initially I was, you know, basically just they call you the equipment manager, but you're just sort of the third and fourth guy running around the room doing stuff, moving this, uh, setting the rooms up, breaking it down after, getting the Gatorades, the benches, stuff like that. Very entry level stuff. Um, but valuable stuff. And, and you have to have someone who's reliable and shows up and does the stuff and helping out with the visiting teams when necessary at that role. And ultimately getting the opportunity to travel, which I'd never in a million years thought I'd be able to do. And, and uh, I was doing team services as well, where Marnie Share, our old team service manager, was home. I was doing it on the road. I was the on-road contact. Did it without an internet, did it without a cell phone, did it without any type of, of uh, you know, real formal stuff. I was guessing and hoping the buses would be there. We flew commercial our first couple of years. So that was always a bit of a challenge, as you know. So, you know, it, it, it evolved into more of a understanding the equipment, uh, learning how to repair it, doing the skates at the rookie camps and some of the guys that we did. But Mark Brennan handled the majority of that. And Timmy did while he was here. And so he went to become the head guy at Columbus. Right. So then I, that, oh, I he that. Yeah, he was the head guy at Columbus up and through this start of this year. So he was there for 20 something years. So. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. He was there the whole time. So he did really well with that. And um, this is his first year not being there, but he had a long, very, very respectful career and taught me a lot and uh, remained very close to this day, obviously. That's too. interesting. And just inside hockey, and I, I know the the head coach there, Brad Larson in, sure. in Columbus. Uh, he's yeah. from Vernon, actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah, nice. That is. Yeah. Um, but would that be like Larson's call that he's not there? Did he move on on his own, or how does that yeah, work? No, I think it was made his decision to do what he had to do. I think his contract was up, and he's been doing it for a long time, and he probably wants to spend yeah. more time with his kids. And, uh, you know, you do this a long time, it does start to, you know, you can see the hours and the and the and the the level of commitment is no different than when it was right. early in your career too. It's just that you know your body changes, obviously the equipment changes, and and the responsibilities uh, it becomes a little more technical. And I know that that was part of the game that changed a lot. That he was telling me on you know the, the, the all the stuff with the after hours with the reporting and the ordering online, and that didn't exist. Emails didn't exist when we were first doing it. It was a lot a lot different of a game. So. You know, probably had enough of, the, of that level of it. So did his time and, and, and time to enjoy some that's life. Cool. Well, good yeah. for Tim. Yeah, that's great yeah. to hear that he, that he went on to uh, to the head job there in Columbus for, for such a long time. Absolutely. And that's probably interesting because we were talking about Scott Brennan before, like I pressed record here. And uh, the name rang a bell. And then we, you kind of described how he looked. And now I, I do re I do remember him. But um the thing, I mean, it's such a blur, right? Especially me. I was such, I mean, I ended up being such a suitcase and I was everywhere and so many different, you know, managers and trainers and, and everything else that, that it, it sometimes goes into a blender. But uh, that makes sense why I do remember you so much more because you were the, you were the guy that was in the room more, right? Like right. you were the guy that was doing the towels and Hey pods, you need a drink or, yep. you know, like that type of stuff. That's what you were doing at that time. Right. That's right. And if you need a skate sharpen, I'd bring him to Brennan and then I'd come back and I bring So I'd walk out with the skates and bring him to there and, Bring it right. back to you. You needed gloves done, then I would leave them for him to do. And that was the system. We had a really good system to get her, he and I. We worked really well together with that.
Yeah, and then he was kind of like the man with the iron keys, I remember too, right? If you needed something, like he would kind of ask you and then maybe yeah. you'd get it, maybe you wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, him, yeah. Right? It was definitely a different type of thing. I called him a guy where he was he, – he cut his teeth in the Western Hockey League driving the bus at New Westminster, and it was very close with uh, – he had Craig Berube and he had Cliff Ronning and he had Mark Recchi, all those guys playing in the dub, and he drove the bus. So he had a really tight relationship with those guys, like like uh, Berube, like I said, and Ronning and – Recky, and then he went on to work in the American Hockey League, uh, Detroit's minor league team. So he had all he had all those guys like Probert and Stevie Y at Detroit. So he had a you know, and he was really really good at what he did with that. So was Timmy, but Mark MacGyver, we call him. He was the guy that would find some way to fix the shoulder pads that you wanted. With that it was just amazing with equipment and really really good at what he did. Right. You mentioned, um, which is actually pretty cool that you mentioned it, like the the psychology of like the job that you were doing the requirement because you had to be you had to have social awareness about you know who wanted to talk or who wanted to be talked to or ask questions or however you wanted to put it um was that sort of a learn on the job thing that was that something you 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 were prepped for like you know how how, how was how did that how did that go about yeah it's interesting they you know obviously yeah you you, you do kind of learn on the fly i can tell you that in my experience, uh, you know, John Van Beesbrook, as, as you know, is clearly one of the most intense, especially gay. Like, it's amazing the the access that the that people have now compared to what it would have been then. And there's no way that the media would have. And it's not right, wrong, or different. I know it's it's what has evolved, but his own teammates basically stayed away from him on game day because that was his that was his mental preparation. He's the goalie, and that's what he did. And he was just very much, you know, to himself. And and he. You know, he, he didn't want to interact. That was his that was his method. And he learned that it wasn't negative, it wasn't personal. That was his mindset. That's what he did to prepare for the games. And you respect that. And and where a guy like Scrudlin was a lot more laid back and, uh, you know, or Bill Lindsay or Nita Meyer, you know, you kind of get away with a little more with those guys up until game time. And then that's their time, you know, and how they want to handle the game. You respect that. And, uh, you know, and, and you learn you do learn on the fly pretty quickly who who is approachable and who isn't. And, and so does everybody around you. It's not solely just, it's the organization. And, and I, it's very commendable to see how the players would respect that. You know, they wouldn't push the boundaries of that. And post game is different, obviously uh, clearly after a victory, uh, you know, it's all this and that, but after a loss, then you still have to learn who you kind of want to go near the coaches. It's like, it's a real challenging minefield to navigate. Sometimes, you know, you don't know, what the reaction is going to be. And, and especially you start hitting a couple of games in a row and all of a sudden, you know, people start getting nervous. It's not the same environment. So it's clearly better to win, uh, but it's self, sort of self learning. And, and, you know, again, coming into a brand new franchise, I didn't have someone say, Hey, watch out for that guy. He's not, you learned it. And we all learned it together because none of us had him prior to that. So we learned it as a staff and uh, Timmy was sort of his guy here. And that's who, dealt with them and that you know if he if he called you he'd arrest them but you didn't necessarily go to guys like that unless they wanted to communicate with you they really pulled they dictated who was going to dict you know they dictated the, the situation yeah, um, meaning like a beezer you're talking yeah. about and, and, yeah beezer or they're not not you know goalies in general <laughs> clearly mm -hmm. you know you still kind of they're you know they have their own method of thinking and doing so uh but there were some other players that were intense too that you know you kind of stayed away from or you know, maybe maybe more of, the, uh, uh, of a tough guy who knows he's got his roles to go out there and, and punch faces or get his face punched. They may not be, you know, they, they know there's a guy on the other side of the ice that they're going to have to go fight. And, you know, they prepare for that. So that's their method of doing it. If they want to chat, they do. You just kind of, when, when you got to game time, you really just kind of let the guys do their own 
processes. You're, you're just, you're, your job is to step back. That's where the coaches are out of there. That's really the player's area, and that's their main domain. And um, you respect their domain, and, and you stay out of there. You don't need to be hanging around there for that. That's something that really uh, is is sacred. For lack of a better right. term. Well, the Marines are no jokes. I mean, obviously, there's there's a, there's an attitude about being a Marine and, you know, the day to day. So, I mean, it's it's not too uh, disconnected, I don't think, from from professional sports in some aspects. But not being not being around it, though, like from the grassroots level. Right. I mean, it really changed for me in junior. Like when I went to play junior A at 15 and you're with these 20 year olds and now all of a sudden like a loss we're competitive, right? So, I mean, a loss matters regardless, but now it's like a different thing, right? And you're on the bus and now two losses is a different thing. And and now you're not allowed to have a movie on the bus because you've lost two in a row or, you know, so like there's a whole culture around winning's fun and losing's not, you know? And, and I could imagine like stepping into that environment, like maybe a loss might've not meant what it would have meant to the other guys just because you've never really been through it yet, right? Sure. So That's right. there's probably a little bit of a, of novelty there right with the whole idea of of professional sports did you ever remember a time where you kind of got your wrist slapped for maybe being too jovial or stepping in or or, or doing something uh, there was it's actually it was kind of funny one time was, i felt like that was the kid had the note passed to him 30 uh, the, the, the note went around 30 times i'm the one i got caught with it but it was in miami arena and doug mcclain was the i love doug and he was great and he and and doug had a, a very big personality and the room, the coach's room was off, as you recall. There was, you know, that locker room was a, the size of a shoebox, really. And it was just one straight way into so the coaches were around the corner. And I was with a couple like uh, Zuko was was our, our truck driver and our stick uh, room. And I had to be friends with these guys before the game. I got them in there. And someone said something. It was it was, it was was in context with what was going on. But like like Dougie Max, like walking by, says, what the F is so fun? We're down 3 nothing after the first period. It was like, what the F? And he's kind of right. Like, no one wants you know, – I wasn't in the room. I was outside the room, but I was close enough proximity that he he was right. And I was like, yeah, I, it made me think about after my mindset around that, like, yeah, this guy, this is what they do. And, and, and I shouldn't be, even if it's something like, like an Eminem, it was a joke about Eminem. It was something really stupid, but it wasn't timing right. And, it, you know, if we were one in three, nothing, maybe, but I, I learned either way, never too high, never too low. Just that's not the place for that. That's their, that's their, you know, where they work. And, and, and as a coach, in a very demanding, you know, where it's really on you for the wins and losses. Um, he, he And he was right. And I learned from that. That was a couple years in, too. It wasn't right away. It was right. Uh, and I, of course, I yelled at, at the guys I was with. I was like, you see, he looked at me and yelled, he yell at you guys. It was kind of funny. And 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 they were like, you know, they had gone to junior high school. Both these guys would be so it kind of felt like that. But it was a learning experience. And I took that forward. Uh, even when I'm around the room now, still, you know, at the times I am, I stay away and know the coaches that's their area and that taught me that was 27 years ago i never forgot that lesson and uh and it was a valuable lesson i'm happy that it happened it, you know right. so it taught me how to be around the room even more and i like that at the time the uh you mentioned beezer um because now that you mentioned I me mean, obviously he was he was kind of i guess looking back on it now he was the alpha dog i think in that room right i mean he was sure. That cup run, I mean, he was he was the best player on that team. I mean, he had to be amazing for 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 them to get that far, and and he kind of had the the biggest you know sort of established all star type pedigree you know coming in. So I think that he was he was the big guy, and then he also had that personality too. And now you bring it up, yeah, he was not he wasn't the most approachable. I mean, definitely on game day, you didn't want to go anywhere That's right. near him. That's right. Yeah, and um, super good guy. He had an impact too when he spoke, right? Like I remember yeah. one of the most impactful things. Um, we we 
I don't remember where we practiced. Where did we practice? It, it was an off-site place. Gold Coast Arena. Back right, in Gold Coast. Yeah. It was like so we had almost a, 50 miles away from the main building. It was a long way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a great setup, but I remember well, we, well, we, we had a practice there at Gold Coast. And anyways, I mean, whatever, a normal practice. And he took me aside after the practice and, and he, uh, he made a comment about my release and my shot. He said, like, you have an, you have an NHL shot. Like, I beat him high a couple of times, right? Yeah. From, about, from about 25 feet. And he kind of hairy eyeballed me a little bit and, and he pulled me aside being the 10 year veteran guy that he was and congratulated me on my shot and said, you know, keep using it. And anyways, like it was, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in the course of a, you know, 15 year career or whatever. But like when someone like that takes the time, you know, uh, that normally you wouldn't think would, you know, like right. it really had an impact on me. Um, well, you know, it's funny because that famous picture that we, we, we went to the cup, I have it in my office actually, where, you know, I'm on the center, you know, we, we won in Pittsburgh in game seven and, you know, they presented the Prince of Wales trophy and Scrudlin, we were out there, it was chaotic. We were, you know, we, no one expected us to get past Boston really. And here we are going to Colorado to play the, the Avalanche and Scrudlin called out the captains and they called everybody else out. So he called Timmy and I, we jumped in the photo. Beezer hadn't come over yet. And he was so emotional that he, he grabbed me and Timmy and we're kind of the center of the photo. And that's the kind of guy he was like, you know, yeah, he was, you know, in his methodology and his game, but that was time to celebrate. And, and he really helped. And, and we were that, that moment is encapsulated in the Panther history. Well, always will be regardless of what they do going forward. That's always going to be something I'm proud of being part of. And Beezer was the main reason that Tim and I were, you know, received as well as we were. I mean, screw called everybody over, but I didn't expect to be, he just hadn't come over yet. He was still shaking guys' hands at the line. So it just worked out that way. But the same guy that was we were really intense and really, you know, you know, making sure that everything was in line was the same guy that after was the biggest one to celebrate with us. So that was a great, right? That was a great, that was one of my highlights of my career too. If you're a first time listener, uh, generally we do have on hockey players. Uh, this is one of those times where we don't. Uh, but I know that you're enjoying this. It's it's really about it, meaning the podcast is really about hockey as a whole you know the journey of the hockey player the development of the hockey player uh the nuances of being great and uh and having some laughs and having a good time along the way so if you are here uh, for the first time by all means welcome uh, i really appreciate your company i really appreciate that you're allowing us to keep you company whatever you're doing today and uh <clears throat> and yeah and if you're enjoying the content and if you're enjoying the conversation by all means share the podcast. Uh, I ask that every episode. I really do. Uh, I think it's important for the growth. The organic growth is really what drives uh, what drives anything, in my opinion. Somebody who cares about the content they're listening to, somebody that gets value from it, and then takes the time to go out of their way to let somebody else know about that. Whether that means through a social media link, whether that means a forward, whether that means a share, whether that means in conversation, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it does matter that you just don't keep this uh, this little hidden gem of, of up my hockey to yourself. So by all means, please share. If you are somebody that hasn't given the review, Apple Podcasts allows you to review podcasts. It really is super easy. Uh, it can honestly take, it can take 10 seconds uh, to put five stars and put A plus as your comment. Like that would be fantastic. That's quick. That's easy. Uh, that helps. Uh, the podcast. It, it's amazing when when a podcast gets recommended. Like I just had somebody from New York uh, reach out to me, said that the, the wasn't even sure how the podcast was delivered to them, but came up in their feed. So in other words, Apple 
gave them a podcast to listen to and what's next. Started listening, has been a faithful fan. And uh, last last month, I started working with his son, a uh, 2007 defenseman. And uh, it's just things like that, you know, that, that, that this, his son needed help in the mindset department, wasn't getting the most out of his game, wasn't enjoying the game as much as he could, and wasn't thriving, right? And we want players to thrive. We want players to be empowered. So because of somebody taking the time to write a review, uh, told Apple that, you know what, this podcast is worthy of listening to. So we're going to share it with other people who find hockey important. And now this young athlete is able to get help and is now thriving uh, in his season and is, and is playing the best hockey of his life and, uh, and is enjoying the sport. So, I mean, that is what this is all about, is to be able to get the word out there uh, to, help, to help young athletes uh, achieve what the heck ever it is they want to achieve and, and to really fall in love with this sport as, as we have. So thanks again. Uh, again, reviews are awesome. Feedback is fantastic. Letting me know personally you're enjoying an episode is fantastic. Um, and yeah, thanks for being here. And let's get back to the interview with Scott Tinker. Uh, you mentioned Brian Scrudlin. I mean, I, I, anyone who knows Screwy as his name, I mean, what an, an enigmatic leader, leader. You know, like he was always the life of the party and, and always making somebody smile or making somebody laugh and uh, always had a joke. But definitely was serious about his work too, you know, like hardest working guy on the ice I remember and, and just one of those guys that brought everybody together. Uh, what do you remember about Screw? You must have some good Brian Screwland story. Oh, well, for I mean, sure I, from the we time. could spend days on that because he really is one of the, the most unique human beings I've ever met. I was very fortunate. He was a major reason why this team was successful the way they were, his culture, his mindset, all the stuff that he did to bring to the room, uh, you know, to include all of us as part of that. And you know, just from his preparation in the morning and laughing and joking. And he, he would kind of, he would, he would <laughs> poke at Beezer a little bit. He was the one that can get away with it a little bit, you know what I'm saying? But where, where, you know, he was really the kind of guy that, you know, even after a loss, he'd start the day. Oh, what's going on? We didn't, you know, he'd turn the radio on and just kind of get thinking about it's over, right? Like now I know there's become a lot more of a mindset than it was back then, but then it's like, all right, let's go on to the next game. And, you know, he, he was the kind of guy I'd pull the sticks and, he said, who are we playing tonight, Tink? I'm saying, well, we got Washington. He goes, that effort Hunter there? I said, yeah, he's there. He goes, how many sticks you have? I said, I, I pulled six for you. He goes, put 12. I said, all right. I know I'm going to break six on his head. Stuff like that. You know, just kind of real funny, uh, you know, little, little anecdotes like that. He was great for, like, Rob, who was his roommate, Nita Meyer, and, and just kind of, you know, po- poking at, at Terry Quinn, uh, Terry uh, 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 Kartner and stuff. But, you know, one, one story that really – kind of tells his true character. I can tell you that we had, you know, it was maybe at that cup run, maybe right after, but at that old practice rink, there was a a, a gentleman in a wheelchair that Screwly, Screwly had promised. He brought him in after a practice and we had pizza. We were at the practice rink and brought him in and introduced, had, moved him around, showed everybody the area, this, that, and the other. And Screw was one of the last guys to leave. So it was just myself, Timmy, and Marnie were straightening the rink up. It was a practice day. And with no exaggeration, there were two cars really left in the parking lot, Screwy's and this gentleman who had a wheelchair. So Screwy was driving out and sees the guy in the wheelchair. He got, The guy was able to drive. No one's around Brian right now, mind you. No, He doesn't know we're watching him leave. He gets out of the car, helps the guy break the wheelchair down, put it in his car, shake his hands, and sees him off. Like, that is character. Like, that's when no one's watching, really. That's really 
a testament to the kind of person that he really truly was. He didn't do it because there was a camera on him or he did it was a fit, you know, he did it because he felt that was the right thing to do. And he was that type of person. And I'm very fortunate that I had the opportunity to be around. I'm still very close to him um, and remain in contact with him. And, and ironically, after I left the team full time and he was, he came back as assistant coach, people that are still there that were, that are still here speak of him as, as the, the, the true best person they ever met in the game. So, player, coach, management, wherever he's been, he's touched people's lives because of who he is and what he is. So certainly one of the greatest of all time. And I would, you know, definitely put that to say he's one of the best you could ever meet. Yeah, he was. uh, What a a great thing to say about about somebody. I mean, that's uh, that's one thing that you don't necessarily understand. At least I didn't in the moment a lot of times about like the impact that you were able to make. You know, uh, and just with subtle gestures, right? Just being, just being a good person, and and just being a good human, and 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 throughout kind of the, the annals of hockey, it, it seems that people around the different big sports, whether it's reporters or whatever, always seem to say that hockey players are the guys that they enjoy spending the most time with. Um, you know, you are on a hockey podcast, but by all means, you're entitled to whatever opinion is, is true. Like, did you did you experience that in your time being around being around these athletes that hockey players were were were? I don't know. You you tell me what hockey players are like. Yeah, no, they're they're definitely a different breed of of individual. I think they're humble and they're so skilled. It's amazing. I've had the pleasure of being around Scott Mellenby and Dave Lowry and Tom Fitzgerald, and these guys are still around and they're in the game, which is great. And Bill Lindsay, who's still a very close friend of mine, and Rob Niedermeyer and Eddie Jovanovsky and the Washington Revolution and Roberto Luongo, who was just involved, you know, inducted in the Hall of Fame. I had him as a 21-year-old when he came from New York and, and before he met his wife and before he had kids and before he was this, you know, uh, manager of a hockey team. He was just a kid that started out in New York, came here and and we and became friends. And, and there, there really are. Paul Laws, toughest guy, without a doubt, I ever saw play and the nicest guy off the ice and just – they, they, there's a different type of mindset for and mentality with these guys. They're, they're generally really, really nice people. In fairness, I'm biased as well. I haven't been around a lot of other pro athletes. I'm sure there's there's guys like that as well. But to your point, I think the general consensus from the people outside of the immediate, meaning like us, would be the media, would be a great indicator. And if they say that, it does, it does hold some credence to it. I mean, one more quick story was after that year, uh, the finals, there was these trophies that were made up. And Unfortunately, a, a business person made from the business side made it up and didn't include Timmy and I. And it created a lot of havoc. The guys were really upset that Timmy and I didn't get one. So long story short, I mean, this came to Bill Torrey and Brian Murray and Chuck Fletcher and Dumbledore. And they called us in. They're like, this is causing a distraction. We don't want – they made this mold. They broke it. You're not going to get one. We said, it's no problem. We don't want to be a distraction. Scroodlin wound up giving his to Timmy and Scott Milliman wound up giving his to me. And – that's it right there. Again, another something. That's the that's the trophy that I got. Oh, wow. And it's from Scott. You know, and that's the stuff that he, you know, he could have kept that for himself or his family. And 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 that was just a testament to the kind of leadership that we had. And and I was fortunate to be around. And um I, I will cherish that forever. And that's and that's why I have such fond memories of that of that time and of those people. And and is that the encapsulating moment, like that that cup run? Because the next year was the year I got traded. Kirk Muller yeah. came in for me and, and yep. uh can't remember. I think you guys, I don't you think you never did, did make the playoffs that year. I we, don't we, think, right? We, we did make the playoffs the next year uh after, after the run. Yeah. 
but we lost to the Rangers. I think they won four straight overtime for not uh, – Gretzky was there. I think it was the only year Gretzky and Messier played. Yeah. Gretzky got that hat trick against us in New York, I recall. And then I think Esatikinen slapped that one against Beezer. That was the last time that team was really kind of together. Right. They started uh, the next year with the Stu Barnes trade and, and other stuff. And Scurry went up. Stuff started happening then. And that was – yeah, so we didn't make – we didn't make the – we made the playoffs one more time in 01 with Pavel. Yeah, uh, and we lost to the Devils. That ultimately went and won the cup. Uh, Rob Scott Niedemar was there, and that was when they that was Brodeur, and that was uh, you know uh, yeah. Danico and all those guys that were that almost that uh, dynasty they had of guys. Jacques Lemur was coaching. They beat us after that. Then no, we didn't make the playoffs for many years, and didn't make the second round until last year, if you can imagine. Right, twenty five years. Well, I was just going to say though. I mean, yeah. it tells me what like what it takes to be successful in that league, and a lot of times, which is which is completely conducive to what I do now. And, and really it's been a mindset shift for, for a lot of different organizations, whether it be at the college level, junior level, or at the pro level is like the type of people that, that they want to bring in. You know I mean, of course you want to have skill and you need skill to win, but it's not necessarily the forefront of every scouting report. Now it's like, you know, who, who are the guys in the locker room? Cause the locker room matters, you know, and that was a special locker room to your point. Yes, it certainly was. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to be part of that and, and, and grateful. And yes, you know, and I know that there's other like I, I know guys that had went on and, and won cups and this, that and the other and, and uh, share that as well. It was it, it's it's important. It really is. And I think there's something to be said about uh, how just important sometimes I do believe it does get undervalued, you know, from a level of X's and O's and maybe just write names on a list. There is a there's maybe a variable that I'm glad they identify that now as as, as an important part of why guys are successful, not necessarily solely because of what they're doing on the score sheet. You know, there's more to it than that. Yeah. And I think that if you get that, to, you know, the guys that, that are able to plug some of that in, that's great. But uh, there's certainly a value to those guys as well. And, and and I think the guys that are the best will tell you that, you know, in the world. And and, and, and you are a testament to that. You can tell, you know, being around guys that you were around. And I'm sure they've, there's guys that they that they have that, you know, maybe not have produced as much as, as maybe the management would like, but certainly produced such a value in that room and, and in the culture of that team. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, the, the one name you mentioned uh, as well, but from back in the day, that was, that was kind of a, an instrumental part of, you know, you learning the ropes and taking you under your wing was, was Lindy rough and, and <laughs> Lindy uh, and just a little bit with Lindy, like Lindy is somebody that I also remember from that time there. He was the guy that was on the ice with us after practice. You I mean, Sutter was out there a little bit, but mostly Lindy. Lindy was the guy at the back of the uh, the plane playing cards with us. You know, yeah. he was the guy telling the jokes and sewing pockets together and, you know, all the oh, stuff yeah. that he would do with the practical jokes. And, um, and anyway, just somebody that I fondly remember. I mean, somebody that I knew that cared and cared about the guys. And then uh, on the next level of a connection, Dave Oliver, who's a Vernon player here, went with uh, David Quinn to the Rangers. And so Lindy right. was part of their staff there. And, and Dave just could not say enough about Lindy Ruff, about like, you know, really said he's probably the best human being I've ever met. Like that was kind of like how he talked about Lindy and now Lindy's moved on and, and has been in Jersey and now having some success there. Like talk about a guy that's been around the game a long time. What what can, what can are your memories of, of Lindy Ruff? Exactly what you're saying. You know, I was very fortunate. He was here for the first four years, and that was the reason why we're, I believe, success as well. His his input, like you say, he was extremely laid back and funny and part of the jokes. And I, I ironically, we just played uh, – the devil's right before Christmas. I saw him and I tried to get him to admit to doing some of the stuff. And he did, he just, he still denies it. I said, okay. I said, listen, it's, it's 29 years ago. No one's going to, I'm telling you, it wasn't me. I said, okay, Lindy. And he kind of smirks. And, and, and 
there was one, there was one joke that was Dave Smith, our medical trainer. He was the guy with the, the nine pack abs and all this stuff like that. And someone kept tying his shirts together and he was blaming it on Joe Sorella and these other guys like that. <laughs> and I said, and, and David got upset, like his shirts were, they were actually ruined. I mean, whoever did it was legitimately really putting them down. He just wanted to, I said, and, and who was tying Dave's shirts? So I can't deny that wasn't me. So I finally got something out of him. <laughs> that's even 30 years, 29 years later, it makes me laugh. But yeah, phenomenal human being, phenomenal, caring, fun, cared about the athletes. I think that's transcribed extremely well and translated to him going to Buffalo. They had a lot of success there. Uh, went to the cup run finals with them, obviously, and then ultimately with the Rangers and now with New Jersey. And I wish nothing for him and his family. He's a great, great guy. And again, another reason this team found success early on. And I credit whoever, you know, the original uh, people that put this together just to identify that as a, hu a huge part of our culture. And he was a big piece of that puzzle. Give us one alleged Lindy Ruff prank because um... – there were there were a lot. Uh, I think I had maybe had him even admit to one. But what what, okay. what what would you what do you remember as one of his alleged pranks? Well, one there was there was someone <laughs> shirts were coming up missing, like like golf shirts and stuff like that. So it <laughs> it turns out they wound up under his cubby hole. So he walked in and he had like fourteen shirts on. He had all the shirts, and he and his defense was like, "Do you think that I would?" come in like that it, it was a perfect alibi because he did second guess now i don't know how what happened he just walked in and the guys were screaming at him because he had all these shirts on and he was like yeah you think i'm gonna put the shirt but i guess psychologically he could have been the guy that is a great way for him to think that it wasn't me so he still he we brought that story up last week at two weeks ago we saw him and he won't admit that he was the one getting the shirts but he did say that he you know he clearly found them in his cubby and another one was brian scrudlin's shoes we're missing. So Screwy actually went on a flight with his flip-flops <laughs> and got on the loudspeaker. This is long before, you know, the, the rules changed with 9-11 and all that stuff. But he's like, listen, I want my shoes before we land. You know, the feed fire. And it was really funny. And and no one ever really – and Lindy was alleged for the shoes. So – and they were like, Get, give me the shoes, Lindy, or yelling at him and stuff like that. But it was funny stuff and, and just really a way to get your mind off, you know, the, the other parts of the game and just added a real fun culture to it. And I'm, it was really funny to be, you know, part of that. I, I'm not so sure, you know, with some of that stuff now. I don't know. Uh, it, it, right. it was just funny stuff. I mean, guys, shirts now may cost a lot more. I don't know that the T-shirts they were wearing back then, but right. You know, guys. I remember, uh, and I can't, I can't remember who who it was, but he he sewed all the pockets shut on uh, on some, but like so he sewed the wallet into like the back pocket and like the car keys into the front pocket or whatever, and so. So there was the one process of the guy going out of the parking lot, one of the players, I can't remember who it was, but like to, so he had to open up his pant pocket to get his keys out, right? And then and then he goes to get gas and he can't pay for the gas because his pocket's sewn up in his yeah. jeans. So he has to go to the restroom and take them off. Like, oh my God. That's funny stuff. I'm sorry. That's really, I know. And that's, I don't sure, if you'll ever admit, I don't know who that was. And I, I stay out of that stuff. I like to, you know, I got blamed for a lot of that nonsense too. I'm telling you, I didn't do, of course they're going to blame me. I, I didn't. You know, I didn't want Dave Lowry brought a funny story, but I, I was a Marine and I got they were able to get some sort of official letter. You know, I was waiting for my honorable discharge. They got me some letter and I, I believe they had Brian or Doug handed to me on the plane that I wasn't going to get. I was getting a dishonorable discharge and I snapped and I went crazy. It was a formal letter and they were all laughing I'm like, you know, stuff like it was just fun stuff that that, you know, that that group of, of guys really yeah. uh, valued. and It was fun. I got shoe checked at, at West Point. First time we're there with Roger Nielsen. 
I hear the clanking of the glass and with all these cadets. And I was out of the Marine Corps like two years earlier. And I'm sitting there next to you, know, they're clanking the glass. What's that? And I look at this big thing of, of uh, A57 sauce on my shoe. And it's like, you know, just little stuff like that was funny. I, that could have been Lindy. I, that could have been Screwy. That could have been a host of different guys. I don't know. No one ever admitted to it. But We were – um... Gosh, that bringing back some memories. Like we were in so shoe check for those listening. I mean, that, that's just like such a term. I don't even know if they do it anymore. Yeah, but like right. it was during a team meal, that very often somebody would sneak like in around your chairs underneath the table. They might be hiding there already, and they would have some type of condiment generally, and they would place it on somebody's shoe, like the end of your shoe. And you have I me mean, these dress shoes, leather yeah, right. and suede and everything else. And then. The player that would do it would go back to his seat and then the boys would all start clinking their glasses and everybody pushes their seat back to see who got shoe checked. Like it was completely comical and hilarious and and kind of just a part of the game. But the, the one part that I remember, which was so funny, was when we were in Peterborough. It was when one of the one of the uh, training camps was in Peterborough. Yeah, and, it, was. And it was like this big, like formal dinner with the mayor and the mayor must have been 103 years old and screwy shoe checked the mayor of Peterborough. like. Go. Oh my God! So the mayor had no idea why there was sour cream on the end of his shoe, right? He had this like look, and we're all cheering. And, and he was a screwy, right? I, that. I, do, I was there for that. Yeah, that was Roger Nielsen. That was his Peterborough had his spot. Yeah, that's what we had camp there. That's right. And I recall <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I, you know, such jokesters, and I, I didn't know it was screwy. I mean, so it's funny that that it's probably getting me too a lot of the times. But it was very commonplace in the Panthers yeah. uh, team dinners to have a shoe check. So I'm happy that. It was usually me. I used, and I, I stopped even pushing my chair away because <laughs> I figured it was, you know, I hear the clank. I'm like, all right, let me just grab the, the napkins now because I know it's going to be there. Because so. the best part was like when somebody ended up being the target, like, like you, you kind of knew, like you knew it was coming, right? So you're kind of looking over your shoulder and you're like, when are they going to get me? But then they would always get you just when you weren't looking. Yeah, you're right, like, I can't right. believe they got me again. I hope they're still doing that. I think that's a fun, I really do think that's a fun part of, of, of bonding <laughs> with the guys and, uh, you know, but definitely uh, there's a, a bunch of guys that could have been with our team. Up My Hockey is not just a podcast. As most of you know, Up My Hockey is also support, mindset support and coaching for athletes and teams and is even going to the association level. Uh, instead of just being a manager of a local AAA team and saying, hey, Mike, my team needs this, one, that is fantastic, and your team does need it. And uh, if you aren't using someone like me, you should find someone like me. Uh, but if you can't find someone like me, then use me because the content that has been created in the Peak Potential Hockey Project has been received so <laughs> fantastically. It is moving players into new levels of performance and in new levels of empowerment and they are thriving uh, in their games so mindset training mindset fitness uh, are things that you can add to your program to make not only your players better but make your whole program better make your branding better make the opportunity and the reason for people to be there um, a, a greater so yeah if you're if you're involved in a team or if you're a coach or if you're involved in an association or an academy and you want a plug and play system for mental fitness that also includes support uh, if you so see meaning coaching support from me or somebody from up my hockey then now is the time to reach out uh, because 23 the 23-24 season is going to be here before we know it uh, I'm recording this right now in January and I'm already taking inquiries for the 2023 season 
Uh, it's best to get it on the books now. It's best to get it in the budget now. It's best to let your coaches and your players know now uh, so they don't go other places, right? This is a reason for players to stay put or reason for players to come to your association or your program uh, to give them that that mental uh, fitness training that they need to grow confidence, to, to become more resilient, to be able to battle through adversity and, and find opportunities and, and all the great things that Up My Hockey is all about, the holistic development of the player. The holistic development of the player. I am such an advocate for that. It is not just about hockey. We can, we can grow these personal development skills, which make these hockey players better, but also have them walk away from the game. Whether it's walk away from the game after practice, whether it's walk away from the game after a game, or whether it's walk away from the game permanently whenever someone decides to leave hockey, that the skills that the, that the Peak Potential Hockey Project teaches will stay with them for life. So that is what is cooking right now. Get your name on the list, whether it be for spring or for the fall. You can reach me at upmyhockey.com. That's all things up. My hockey are there, my programs, my contact forms, uh, my summer programs, all those good things are there. But by all means, reach out and let's talk support for your association or for your team next year and let's get you on the schedule. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to the conversation with Scott. Baker. We can't not talk about that run to the cup without talking about the rat because the rat was was like what that whole thing was. You mean the the thousands of rats on the ice and you know Juan is net and the famous kind of story with that and 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 that was all based off a true story and and like I don't know I mean it, it is a long time departed and I know a lot of the listeners now maybe weren't weren't even hockey fans then like can you can you talk about what happened there in the dressing room? Sure, and, sure, and it's interesting you must because have been a part of it. Yeah, well, right, it was the. I believe it was October 8th, 1995. We were playing. It was that shortened season, and uh, it was our opening night. We had played the Devils the day before in New Jersey. They raised their banner, so we had seen that. And we are playing a home opener the night, the next night. And for the home opener, they would list you in alphabet. Ordinarily, guys go on their own, right? The Beezer would go first, and then the goalie would take you out, and then guys had their place in the line. Well, the home opener had, was by the number. So they called you out as, as, as the player. So guys are in that line down the room. And all of a sudden, this giant rat, like the size of a possum, comes running down our hallway and goes in the room. And you, as you recall, it was a small room. But it went to the left, and guys are, like, jumping out of the way. Uh, it goes right around, goes to Mel, Scott Mellaby, and he one-times it, kills the rat, and then went out, scored two goals, and Van Beesbrook, John Van Beesbrook, family coined the term rat trick. Well, that night... I had taken the rat out. This is where the, a lot of people may not know the story. I took the rat out, dumped it in the garbage. And at the end of the night, I went to where it was killed. And I just I just denoted 10, 8, 95. And I've circled the blood area and put <laughs> RIP rat one. So that's where it kind of started. And then guys were like, did you save the rat? Where I said, no, I didn't save the rat. So what happened was... <laughs> It was around Halloween. I went to uh, there was a, I was at Aventura Mall where I lived, and they had a a, a, a pop up like Halloween sort of had this giant rat. So I bought the rat. I put it underneath where it was on the tape deck where we had the tape not the deck but the tape stored. Yeah. And someone took a photo of it, and the next thing you know, whenever Scott scored, they started throwing the rats down. That's really how the rat and and, and that Matt, Mel will attest to this, and the guys will. That's how the rat thing kind of really really started. And I actually, the day we left Miami Arena, I cut out, I cut out the, the drywall and I got the actual rat and I went to archives. They saved it. We had it. 
and I had possession of it because I had bought the rat. I give the rat to Scott Mellaby. He has he has possession of the original rat. But that's really, I mean, and what's ironic was we got Sandus Ozilich later played for us. He played for Colorado on that team. He actually said he hated they, they hated those rats. And he said, Pat Wall, which is that fit, Ray Shepard scored the only goal in Miami Arena. We lost in four, but it was he scored the only one in Miami Arena. Patrick Wall went back in the net. All those rats came down. According to Sandus Ozilinch, Wall went to the Colorado bench and said, that is the last goal they're going to score on me. And that was the last goal that we scored. The rats only came down after we lost, whatever it was. Right. But he, he made that comment. Now, if you ever talk to Patty Wall, you could you could ask him yourself or, or Ozilinch, whatever. That's what that's what Ozilinch told us, and it, or me. It, told, it made a lot of sense because we didn't score another goal after that. Wow, and he was that good, too. Absolutely. It was funny. Screwy kind of messed with him, too. Screwy had won a couple with him in Montreal. So he knew sort of his intricacies and would kind of go out. And, and Billy Lindsay and Tommy Fitz, would, they knew he'd like to touch the blue line. So they, they would kind of get in his head and try to get in his way and do all kind of stuff like that. So little, little mental games they played with him. Clearly one of the best goalies of all time, too. Right. So that was a fun, fun run. So then, w- with that route, which is super cool, because I remember, I remember you, I me, mean, I remember seeing the circle there in the R. Yeah. Like, wow, like you, you are, you are the the guy. But like, did the, did it get into the press that night that that the rat was in there, or when did it start to like to? Yeah, that night, uh, John Van Beesbrook coined the term "rat trick." Really, he did. Scott scored two goals and killed a rat, <laughs> and and that that's really where it started. And next thing you know, it became. It's funny because that's how traditions do. You know, that was the year that finally we really, you know, the first couple of years. Everybody who came to not everybody, but the majority of people who came to the game were Ranger fans and Flyer fans and Detroit fans. And we finally had our own base of fans, really. And that was sort of the, you know, I, I would never compare it to the octopi. But what's fascinating was that watching the NHL uh, network, they had I think the top ten, uh, you know, rituals of hockey, and that I think was number six that made the all time list. It was pretty cool from a, right. a newer team to have that, and you know, ultimately they had to put rules in because of it. Yeah, but I think that, that that yeah they did they put rules because of that that all the stuff. What wasn't so fun was when we went to Philly, them throwing or Pittsburgh throwing rat tracks at us, or right you know, started weighing down the rats with these fishing weights and throwing them down from the third level, hitting us on our bench. And so yeah, it, it did become a bit of a of a liability, but nonetheless, that's that's the story, and that's you know that's really uh, you know that the, the story behind it. That you know, so it made it that night. There's a photo that was in the Herald, and the next thing is history. That's how right. it works. So I got a personal question, and I highly doubt that you remember. But um, if you do, it'd be cool for just for some light for, for me and my own curiosity. So when I got called up from Spokane uh, for that run, I landed the night before. We were playing Boston. I think you guys were two or three games into the series, and I was supposed to play in Game Four. Like when okay. I when I got there, like I was told I was in the lineup. Uh, went to the pregame meal, like showed up at the rink. Then I was going to play because Ray Shepard was out with a shoulder injury. Okay. Anyway, so I get to the rink. I'm ready to go. Obviously, nervous and excited, and all the million million emotions you can imagine. And then, but Ray Shepard ends up showing up and says that he's fine or whatever. And I get tapped on the shoulder that I'm not going to play. Okay. And then never did play a game. Right. Then ended up turning into the black ace, and you know, it never wasn't needed. But like that in the first 24 hours of me being there, I was supposed to play. Do, do you? It just sort of like I always look back on that like this miracle recovery because there's. Like there's been many times, obviously, in pro locker rooms that if a guy says he can't play the night before or even the morning of, you know what I mean? Right. Like he doesn't just all of a sudden get better and play. Like, do you remember him being injured at all or what might have happened there? No, it's ironic because what would happen was I would have been at the other rink anyway, and that would have come down to the Timmy and Mark would take the stuff down after practice. 
Right. She would skate at the, at the incredible, at the, uh, um, that ice rink at sunrise. And then we'd bring the equipment down. I would come down later. So I, I would not have been, they would have set everything up. Right. So I, I'm sorry. I, I wish I had recollection of that. I don't. Yeah, I did. I like the black ace stuff like that. You've been around for all that stuff and being a, just a great guy and very skilled player and, and, you know, just hanging out with you a lot because you were out there after everybody else left. We were out there collectively part of all that stuff. And, they, and yeah. you still bond. You have a lot. We had, I think we we're carrying 30 guys or whatever it was. And, you know, it was a lot. And, it's, and, and there is a value to that, too. You are around that. Yeah. Oh, culture. 100%. Yeah. And it's a great thing. So, yeah, no, I don't recall that specifically. But as, um, um, as as your as your relationship grew, and you meant you know you, you talked about your relationship with Lindy Ruff, and you, you talked about you know Don McLean who who was there, and uh, uh, what type? And, and that was the thing I was wondering because we before we got on, I said, I mean, you, I mean, Tank and Timmy, and and you guys are around us more than anyone is, and and you guys are around the players in their most natural state, I would say, than anyone else, right? Because anytime a coach gets in front of you or a GM, there's some type of a mask you kind of put on or, you know, like the things you're supposed to say or ways you're supposed to act, um, regardless of how comfortable you are. Like maybe maybe more so for me as a younger guy, less than Brian Scrudland, who seemed to be kind of the same way he was in front of everybody. But um, in saying that, my lead up for that is like, did you ever get called into Don's uh, McLean's office or Lindy's and say, Hey, what do you know about X, Y, and Z? Or like, was there ever that type of a, of a conversation had about uh, inside scoop on players? No, not, not really. I, I, and I would tell you if I believe me, I would not pull back if I, it was, it wasn't really like that. Uh, you know, we, we sort of adopted, you know, we were kind of there. It wasn't really our job to evaluate talent and this, that, and the other. We, the guys that are doing it for a while know their role and, and don't, you know, there may have been other guys around that do that stuff and they kind of get that, you know, they think they're a GM type scenario. Us, we were just happy to do what we did. And thankfully there wasn't a lot of that. It wasn't so much, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, between us, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I think that if that was sort of the, the culture, you wouldn't have really been able to see the access that we had. I think that guys would have been a lot more tentative, uh, to, to really open up and do stuff. I, you know, um, there, I can tell you from a perspective of as the game turned a little more European, per se, yeah. there were a lot, it got a lot, a lot more, I won't say clicky, but you can't blame guys that, you know, as, as, as more Russians came in or more uh, other, you know, um, nationality and Czechs came in, they would sort of gravitate their own. So it got a little harder to keep a balance uh with with that stuff and, and i you couldn't blame him because our philosophy was if i went to go work in czech republic and there was three north american guys i'm probably going to speak to them too so it was kind of that right. understanding of it and it wasn't disrespectful it was just the way it was so um yeah i think that this organization did a good job and i had chuck fletcher who was another phenomenal uh, guy and still obviously uh as gm now with, with philly and um you know very very instrumental in being a part of what was here and no, not really so much. We didn't right. get involved in, in a lot of that stuff like that. And thankfully, if stuff went on, you know, uh, it never really hit the room. Guys, if there was stuff maybe outside the room that may have occurred here or there, it wasn't, you know, by the time whatever happened, listen, it's a hockey, guys. Things happen, right? But yeah. by the time it got to the area of, of sacredness, it, it had already been resolved, dissolved. I'm not saying guys didn't have issues with each other. Sure. I mean, I, I can't recall many on-ice fights and practices. Maybe that was just – you know, more of a sign of us being in the midst of a, you know, a couple of game losing streak and frustration and, and the old saying that, you know, a negative emotion is better than no emotion. Yeah. So guys out there, but for the most part, uh, never really too, too bad. Uh, but no, not never really caught upon to, to give that type of opinion. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is good because then that would have put you in a really awkward spot, right? I mean, yeah. not not that maybe the players would have known, but at some point they probably would have found out. And then, I mean, you're obviously your job kind of entails, you know, to answer the question if you were asked, you know, which isn't which isn't fair either. But I just thought that it was always interesting because definitely you guys got to see, um, you know, the real the real side of the players, right? And kind of had a feel for what was going on in that room, probably better than even the coaching staff did. Sure. Way, yeah, so. that, that, I would agree with that, and that's true. And I think that's part of maybe why they didn't want to jeopardize that for our well-being in terms of at least being around the room, I think that might've created maybe some conflict. As I said, the whole thing with, with the, with that trophy uh, you know, the the guys came and spoke to us. We never wanted to be a distraction to anything. That was never our place. You know, we've always, for us as trainers, you know, I say trainers with equipment, you know, our, our goal was to get the guys on the ice. And once they were on the ice, they were the coaches. And after they came back to our area, we never wanted to be an excuse. A guy couldn't play because the skate wasn't right or stick wasn't right or, or equipment didn't show up. I mean, so, you know, I was always very happy with our staff or we based on like that Peterborough, we had to drive the equipment and for us to have 80 something guys show up to outfit with jerseys and socks and this, that to get them on the ice is quite an accomplishment. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of credit to the guys that do that and continue to do that every day. You know, it, it kind of goes not without reward or not being noticed, but it's part of their, their job. But still, you know, an effective part, our goal was to get them on the ice. And we were always high five after we got the start of camp, the first day of camp, everybody's on high. The equipment showed up from, Russia or from wherever it was coming from, or this guy's from even Spokane was hard to get or, or stuff out of the uh, Western hockey league stuff gets lost. Or we had to pick back then we would pick the guys up from the airport. They didn't have services. So I'd go get guys or this, that picking guys up in groups in a van, we rented a van and do that. So yeah. it was just different. And, and uh, you know, that that's, that's a testament to the, the people that do that job and do it well. So yeah, that's an accomplishment. No, a huge part. And then uh I'm just thinking you said about the appreciation aspect and I, and I think uh, hockey in general does a good job with that as far as even from at the end of the year, you know, like the playoff, the playoff scenario, I think trainers aren't really responsible for the playoff bonus or the tips or whatever, but guys would always generally take care of you guys. Right. Like that'd be something that would, that would happen. That's exactly what would happen. It was always good for the guys. And, and back then there was stuff that we didn't have contractually that the guys knew about. So they would, they would step up and help us out with that stuff too. So it, it really is a team from top to bottom and, and it's a bond. And when you're with guys like that, you really do develop strong. And again, I was in a, I was in a war in the military. So I get what it's like to be uh, at someone else's, you know, them relying on me the way I rely on them. And, and, and there are a lot of carryovers and crossovers between sports and military. And I think there's a reason for that because there was that mentality of the room is our, is, is our defense. And, and, you know, you mess with him, you mess with me type thing. And it really is part of the culture as well. Not not only hockey, but but all sports. And I think it's an important way to, to I think it does trend, transition, transition well in terms of at least understanding that's the mentality that has to exist for your guys. And, and you know, when there are guys that don't necessarily agree to that, they, they kind of weed themselves out. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, that's just the nature of what happens. And and, and that, that plays itself out within the culture of the room. And, that, you know, and, and it's, uh, different than in the, in the corporate world where I've experienced where there's a lot, you know, it's a lot more for themselves. Rightfully, you're not in that. You're not pulling. The one thing I would say about professional sports that's so great is that there's an end and a start. Like you finish your season, right? Whether you win it or lose it, it's over, right? And you start fresh the next year. And that's, you don't have that necessarily in, in, a, in a corporate world where every day is just the mundane, you know, we have, yeah, you have new jobs. Thankfully, what I went into was transportation there was 50 new jobs the next day, but it wasn't everybody pulling for the same goal yeah. necessarily. Yeah. It was a lot different. So when everybody's pulling the same and, and you see great examples of teammates and teams and this, that, and the other, and, and 
uh, it's it's really a great thing when it all comes together. That's a good point. I never really thought of that before because there is. Uh, I remember just just like well, not that it was a long time ago, but Christmas, like the holidays, like me and 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 like got my hockey and trying to grow it and the podcast and the on ice stuff that I have. And anyways, I mean all the stuff that you have being an entrepreneur and you know having a business and uh, it just. I mean sometimes you just feel like you're underwater, right? And there isn't like that end of season horn that goes that says right. okay. You know, now you get this and, you know, you're going to go back to training again. Like it just never ends. Right. And uh, <laughs> and it was just a really good break where I it was almost like, I don't know, it wasn't almost even like a choice. It was like, all right, like I'm just we, we hunkered down at home. Like all we did was play games and watch movies and, you know, kind of put everything away. And uh, and it was nice, but it's hard to plan that in. I mean, hockey, it's planned in. Right. You know, whenever yes. it ends, it ends. But then at least, you know, that that, that it has ended. And, and yeah, that's a great point. I never really thought of it that way, because it is a little bit draining the corporate world when it comes to that, because it's just never, never a finish line. Yeah. And, 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 and candidly, too, you know, with no disrespect to anybody outside of hockey, you know, when you're in hockey and even for someone like me, you take for granted just the athleticism that it takes to be in that. And these are you, you guys are really the top one percent in the world of what you do, period. And, you know, that barrier of entry is so challenging compared to when you're in, in the corporate world. And it's not nearly that type of level of commitment and excellence that you, your coworker is, with all due respect. And I own the business. And I'm telling you from that perspective, it's yeah. just different when you're around that, you know, I think it's taken for granted a lot of times, just how hard you guys really work and the, the sacrifices you make. I mean, I, I'm still, you know, being a, a grown up in America, I know it's changed a bit now, but, you know, the, the billet system of Canada when you're 16 years old and getting shipped off to a different place and living with a whole new family and riding that bus. And, you know, that's a whole new culture to us here, at least for me. You know, I went to the Marine Corps at 18, so I was still as young when I did it. You know, my yeah. my oldest is now at the stage of college where I was, where I was getting ready to deploy into a war. Thankfully, he's not in that. And I was. And so it's different how, you know, for your 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 kids, it's a lot different. But, you know, that culture that was bred and just the hours and the sacrifice and the early mornings that you guys have to do to get to that level of pro hockey uh, is really commendable to you guys. And, and I don't know if that's really identified enough uh, to the guys that, you know, uh, to a pro athlete. So, I mean, I know you've talked to guys that have been in the game and coached and this, that I, I didn't, as you alluded to early on, I didn't do that. I, I came in as a newbie to the sport uh, and, and, and really got a quick appreciation for just how hard, it is to get out there and skate and work and, and seeing the guys behind the scenes and knowing that when they fight, that's real. People always ask, oh, is that state? No, I mean, no, no. Yeah, sure. There may be, I will never say it's premeditated, but you know, there are games, you know, that some, the two big boys are probably going to tangle, but it's not like set. It's not like, you know, Hey, this is a, a wrestling type scenario. That's those guys go out there and they punch faces. That's a tough thing to do. It's not an easy yeah. thing to, 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 you know, knowing that's your job. Yeah. And, 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 a lot of credit is deserved to not just, but anybody else too. I mean, you came up in time, Podsy, with the guys. It was a different league. I mean, with the fighting, and and, and it's funny because, you know, like Jeff Chickren, who who's here now. You know, I have he he's around and he, he does our, our media for the Panthers. His son Jake was just here, and and you know, Jacob's a specimen. And it's funny because they didn't have those type of off ice workouts. He didn't. They didn't have the type of. of of information about nutrition and sleep science and all the different values, you know, they were better off having a punching bag <laughs> than they were having uh, anybody with a power, you know, understanding the true value of eating and sleeping and hydration, you know? Yeah. So you, you came up at a time when guys, it was really, uh, you know, a, a culture of 
of toughness and almost we're not bullying by any means, but you had to defend yourself. It's the game's changed for the better in that regard, I think, but still different. And, you know, uh, it still exists obviously, but not to that level. It was back then when you came up, we had line brawls in, in training camp. I mean, you don't even see that now in, in games really. Imagine guys were truly fighting for spots. It wasn't like it is now, I guess. I don't know the business side of it as much. I'm just saying, I know what I experienced and I watch guys like a Chad Cabana come in who played a tri city tough kid. And he takes on Paul Laws, who had just had the you know 410 pims in the American Hockey League, and they they go toe to toe in front of no fans. It was strictly for Cabana to get his name noticed, and that's that's what he had to do, and he did. And you know Paul's trying to make the team. We didn't have he he hadn't played for us yet, so you know there's all these different things that of the culture that's changed for the better, and they've identified headshots and and what that means, and and you know shields and all the stuff that are now part of the game that wasn't part then. So. Yeah hits to the head and, and what that means it's a tough game you know tough i mean and yeah i mean and now it's it is it is still tough but i mean i i lament a little bit about it kind of in a, in maybe a, a dinosaur sense like i i don't know i, I always took an immense amount of pride of being able to get a job done you know in, in that era right because you you could not be timid and you could not be shy because that was exposed that was exposed in a real big hurry you know Absolutely. um I said to somebody the other day, oh, you know what? I think it was on the last podcast that hasn't aired yet, though, but with Ladislav Kohn, he asked me if I've ever watched any old tapes. And, like, you know, from that time, there wasn't there wasn't nothing digital, right? So either, yes. like, I just never saw anything. And, and and video was coming in. Roger Nielsen had made video pretty important just across the league. So we, we would watch video, but, like, the guys wouldn't have access to their own shifts or, like, it wasn't like you like it is nowadays. But last month, my old man dropped off like this box of old crusty VHS tapes that he had had since I was 20 years old. Right. Wow. And so I plucked a few in the, the, the other day and, and there was one game of us in Florida playing against the Red Wings. And I would happen to be in the lineup that night. And, uh, and there was legitimately three major penalties on me, uh, <laughs> like from Fatisov twice cross checks to the head and a spear from Konstantinov in front of the net in the power play, like a legit spear. And one of them was a penalty for two minutes. Right. And, uh, and it was like just looking back on that, like I don't even remember that game. Like I didn't remember it at all. But now watching that and to be like, holy shit! Like I was trying to become an NHLer and be an NHLer, and like there's no way that felt good. Like, but you know, you had to go out and you had to have your next shift and you had to go to the net just as hard the next time. And yeah, and those are those little things that I kind of still take pride in. You know what I mean? That I was like, yeah, you had to. It was a little bit of a war. Yeah, it was a sport, but it was a little bit of a mini war out there. Absolutely. It was a battleground. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. And you saw it. And. And guys would say, you know, it, it, it really was. And it was back then it was, you're absolutely correct. I think penalties that are now didn't even exist back then. You could Scott Stevens real tape. You could see a lot of stuff that you wouldn't be able to get away with. Not say get with, but just, it's just changed. That's all. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, and it's it is for the better. It yeah, is. I, mean, I agree. I think that kind it's, of stuff, the player protection yeah. is for the better. That's right. Um, but I do think that there's a, there's a broader, there's a broader range of personality types that can get into the game now. I guess is the one thing that I've, that I've said, you know what I mean? Like the, the, yes. there's, there's more room for more types of players. I, I I think, you know, back, back in the day, you kind of, you had to be cut from a little bit of the same cloth across the board um, or else you would just get exposed, you know? And uh, so I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess it's a good thing. Um, but it is something I look family on. You've mentioned hydration. I mean, hydration for us was six beers after the game, right? No, that's that right. Was- yeah. <laughs> I mean, we went to the finals that year. There was no bottled water. We had, Salt in Gatorades and Gatorades and apples, uh, you know, and, and oranges and bananas. That's we had no glove dryers. We had a a, 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 a hair dryer with a PVC pipe, and that, you know, that that was really what it was. I mean, we went we went that that last game was uh, three overtimes, whatever it was, and you know there was no extra stuff, and we didn't have heated. It was just different, you know. It was just yeah. different, and you're right. It's it's evolves 
so much more where they, and that, and you'd see the speed and this, that, and the other, and the appreciation for the athleticism. Not that it didn't exist then, because it clearly yeah. it did, but the, 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 the knowledge wasn't there the way it is now. And you're right. right. You know, Randy Moore tells funny stories about when he would go to camp in Quebec, like you're saying, the, 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 the week before he would cut down from 12 beers to six, you know, and then smoke marble lights instead of marble reds. And, and then really kind of, you know, and he, he would tell stories of guys that would just put a garbage bag on and drive around their, in their car with the windows up to lose weight. I mean, so, you know, yeah. we come to camp to get in shape. Now, now clearly guys are, it's a 24 month evolution. Yeah. You're accountable. I'm sure there's a little downtime after the season ends immediately, but not much. Yeah. And you have to remain that competitive just to, 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 you know, to, and, and your body is really the temple where you're right. It was six beers after a game and there was no hydration science. You know, it was, yeah. there was water, there's water in the Budweiser, I guess, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's where, the, that's really kind of what it was. So, you know, it, that, is what it, is. it was yeah. fun though. It made it a little bit of a cowboy era. You know what I mean? All right. One more break here from the conversation with Scott Tinkler, just to remind you of where you can follow me. Uh, my YouTube channel is growing. I can't claim that I'm like massive or anything, I, but I am approaching 500 subscribers, which is kind of exciting. And, um, you know, all I'm doing on YouTube, I have no idea what I'm doing on YouTube, but one of the things I am doing on YouTube is putting these episodes on there. So I put the episode in its entirety on there. Uh, you get to see me and my guest uh, communicate. And sometimes that's, uh, that's a good way to listen to the interview. And I also do put podcast clips on there. Uh, when I do have time, I put lessons from the pro on there. That's actually where I do teaching videos about mindset. Uh, usually related to uh, to a podcast or a story that came up in a podcast. And sometimes I break down NHL clips or a junior clip uh, about things that are happening on the ice that, that sometimes are entertaining. So I do enjoy creating content for YouTube. It's just like, my goodness, it's totally not my job. And, uh, and my days are massively full. Uh, so when I do have the opportunity to create original content, I do. But one of the things that I do put on there is these episodes. So if you're listening right now in a car and if you're a YouTube person, uh, not, even if, not even if you're necessarily going to watch, but get on there and subscribe. That's another way you can totally help grow the Up My Hockey brand is just get on there, press subscribe. And, um, and whether you listen or not, that would be a fantastic way just to promote the growth of that channel. If you are not a YouTuber, I am on Instagram. Uh, that's kind of a more personal place to follow me. I, I usually keep my stories on Instagram fairly updated, so I'll uh, show, show practice drills on there that I'm doing or skating techniques that I'm working on on the ice or some of the programs that I'm running here on the ground uh, locally in, in British Columbia. And I also do talk about mindset and, and, some, and some things that I am noticing on a day-to-day -day kind of level. So if you want to follow me more on a personal level, it's at Jason Padol on Instagram. And of course, there is the Up My Hockey Facebook group, uh, which is the parent group on Facebook. It's a fantastic community. Uh, we have conversations in there. We support each other in there. We, uh, those play people are the first to get to know about my new products and services that are coming down the pipe and also get access to the live podcast uh, to ask questions live when I do uh, choose to do that. So lots of places to follow me uh, if you haven't already. And I uh, really appreciate the support. And let's get back to the interview with Scott Tinkler. You, you need to yes. get going. I'll ask you one more, uh, which I think you being there in the trenches and seeing what's going on and, and uh, just the ability of 
I mean, I'm going to say hockey players, but I'm sure it is in other sports. Football, I know, is a real tough crew and everything else. But, like, the ability of players to play through stuff at the NHL level really was, like, mind-boggling to me. Is there anything that you remember in your time there that was, like, somebody that you were pretty inspired by, what they were able to get through to to go and, and, and put on the jersey and play? Well, I think – and somebody you would know, too, with Robert Svela. You know, we call him the trenching bull because this guy took that slap shot in the playoffs and basically refused to put a shield on. He went in there with Doc Robbins, who's still our doctor and still tells the story as well, you know, would, would refuse Novocaine to get his teeth and, and came back out and had the shield and didn't even want to play with it. He just wanted to keep going. Like, you know, there's so many stories of guys with pucks and, uh, you know, to the elbows and, and they cut the knees and the, and the toes and concussions and this, that come back and play. And, you know, it's a testament to that. Yeah, the, the really Bobby Svela was one of the toughest guys I've ever seen with that type of pain threshold, you know, or, or getting hit by you know, Eddie Jovanovsky with hitting Lindros and, 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 you know, fighting and then all it, your hands. And I, I'd see Rhett Warner's knuckles all beat up or, or, you know, How about Blouser's knuckles? Oh God. It was like, it looked like, uh, you know, uh, uh, went through a meat grinder, you know, and tough as nails. Yeah. Like that's yeah, really even close his hands sometimes. Right. You know, like, yeah. That's right. And, and that was just, for practice. I mean, I mean, I, people, I mean, he had 39 fights that, that, that third year, 39. I mean, that's it. I don't think teams have that now. I mean, uh, the league may not even have. To, I mean, the guy had one. He, he has the record, so I was pretty fortunate to be part of that. I don't, I don't think it's ever be broken. He had thirty nine fights in one year, so that goes to show you. I mean, he was his hands and, and this, that, and the other, and what that takes to get out there mentally and know you're going to go out and fight Rob Ray or Tony Twist or, you know, all those guys that back or, or where else? Another guy, Peter Worrell, had to go out and do the same. I mean, he's big compared to yeah. Paul six two, but nonetheless, still knowing you have to go out there and do that. As part of the job, it's a lot of respect for guys that would get up yeah. and do that, do their job, do it well, and 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 continue to do it over and over again, which is, yeah. is, is hard. So yeah, that's really cool. That was a special time, Tink, and uh, you know, thanks for coming on. It, it's awesome yeah. to see. I mean, t- Tommy Fitzgerald is you know moved on to be a GM, and uh, you know, we mentioned uh, Lindy there being a coach, and you know, Beezer I think is president of USA Hockey. Yeah, he and, is. Yeah, yeah. You know, like and. Uh, Pie was, was was an assistant. Like, there's so many guys that moved on from that team. Billy Lindsay's doing your doing yeah. your um, media now, right? Like Jovo, Jovo's there. He played well over you know thousand. What's games. Jovo doing? He's doing TV for for us as well. Is he? Yeah, he's there too. So yeah, he's doing that. Oh, that's and, awesome. uh, you gotta give me his his, uh, his contact. I'll, I will. I'll, I'll send it. I'll send it to you for sure. It'd yeah, be a great there. interview as well. It'd be so, great. Yeah, yeah. awesome to see that group kind of have on gone on and done their things. And, and Rob Niedermeyer's another one. Look at Robbie went won a cup in Anaheim and. Played a long yeah. career too, and and great great stuff, you know. So where's he living now? Do you know where he's at? He's out in Cranbrook. He is back in Cranbrook. He's, he's hiding out there, yeah. So Good I joke. Him. Yeah, I just ran into his brother the other day. His son uh, played against one of my sons in a tournament. So uh, oh, wow, uh, good to see the Niedermeyer name around there. So. Absolutely, yeah. That's right. Anyways, well, we didn't even talk yep. about the alumni, but you're looking after the alumni and me. And maybe, maybe if uh, if, if I strike gold, I'll be playing that in that alumni game there at the All Star sure. Weekend. That'd be a ton of fun. Um, but regardless, I know our paths will cross here again. Uh, we'll be in touch. I'm glad. I'm glad that we were able to get on. And boy, you brought back some good memories for me and some good laughs. So, so thanks, Tink. Yeah, thanks, Paji. And again, I'm really happy for what you're doing. You're doing a great job of what you do. I'm following you, and, and congratulations on this transition. I know it's not an easy thing to do, and, and you're doing a great job doing it. So keep that going for sure. I appreciate that, Tink. Have a good one, man. All the best, buddy. Take care. Talk to you soon. All right, thank you so much for sticking around till the end. And if you did stick around for the till the end, I know you must be a diehard. Uh, you love the conversations, and if you are, then I'm going to give you this little cherry. 
of, of a story that Scott shared with me afterwards. I, I, I think I've been pretty honest with my recollection uh, abilities, which aren't great when it comes to my memory of my own hockey career. Like there are definitely things that stand out, things that will be entrenched forever. But like the day-to-day funniness, the jokes, you know, the the things that happened on the bus, even like the majority of the games, like there's so much stuff that I know that I don't remember. And for anyone out there who is, if you are a young player right now, I'm telling you, you may think it sounds fluffy and stupid, but keep a journal, keep a hockey handbook, write down the stories, write down the funny stuff and the good stuff and the bad stuff of your own journey. You will be so thankful when you're done, when it's all finished, whether you're 30, 40, or 50, and you can look back and you can recall and flip through some of your time in junior or bantam or midget or or even at the, if you're a pro listening to this, by all means, listen to, to an old guy now and, and write it down. But anyways, I digress. Scott Tinkler says, after we get done with the conversation, he texts me and he goes, I didn't know if you wanted me to talk about the tickle trunk or not. And I was like, oh my gosh, the tickle trunk. I, I remember that from Mr. Dress Up, for those of you who have watched that before. But I'm like, it's jogging my memory, but I do not know this story. I'm like, Tink, tell me about the tickle trunk. What's the tickle trunk? And he, apparently the tickle trunk was what was written on my jock when I came up from junior in Spokane the year I got called up to Florida. So it was like 1996, and I came to Florida. I was supposed to play for Boston, which you heard, against Boston, I should say, uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I show up at the rink with this jock strap that has tickle trunk written on the cup, which I don't remember. I swear I wouldn't have written it on there, or at least I don't think I would have written it on there, that somebody probably on my team wrote it on there. And, uh, and I show up, and I guess... The vets, he said, just thought it was hilarious, first of all, but they also like made it a joke. They're like, you can't have this kid have tickle trunk on his jock strap. This is the show. This is the NHL. Get this guy a new jock. So I was like, Tink, did you actually get me a new jock? He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to get you a new jock. He said, uh, I guess Mellonby and Lowry were the, were the vocal supporters of giving me a new jock. So anyways, I thought that was hilarious. I thought that I'd share, share that with you. He was trying to protect uh, trying to protect me by not sharing, bringing it up on the podcast. But I thought it was harmless enough. I don't even know where the tickle Trump came from. But the fact that the vets got, got a kick out of it and said that the... This is the best league in the world. We can't have guys in our team running around with tickle trunk on their junk. So anyways, thanks, Tink, for sharing that with me. Thanks for sticking around here till the end. Uh, Tink, if you are listening or anyone who's related to Tink uh, is listening, knows Tink as a, as a person, you know what a great guy he is. And uh, boy, what a fantastic person to have in your life. And he was a fantastic person to have in my life for my for my short time there with Florida. He made a... Uh, you know, a challenging time being a being a rookie in the NHL and trying to find your way. He made he made that experience for me a lot easier uh, and a lot more comfortable. So, thank you to that tank. I know you made a difference in a lot of people's uh, lives, a lot of players' lives going through there, and and that's a testament to the relationships that you still have with those guys on that team and and what those guys are willing to do for you. So, remember everybody, no matter what your job, no matter what you're doing, you have the ability to make an impact, a human impact a positive impact, a memorable impact on somebody. 
and uh, and boy, I try I try to do that daily. I honestly do is uh, try to connect and try to try to make a difference. And and if we can follow the example of Scott Tinkler, um, I think the world will be a better place. So thanks so much for listening, and until next time, play hard and keep your head up.